Welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law Podcast. Today's episode is part two of a two-part series discussing Rule 50 of the Olympic Charter. I'm Tom Seymour, a barrister at Morgan Sports Law, and as I was in part one, I'm joined by my colleague, Nee Anderson. I'm also joined by two very special guests. First, I'm joined by Tiana Bartoletta. Tiana has won three Olympic gold medals and is a reigning Olympic champion in the long jump and the 4x100 relay. She's a two-time world champion in the long jump and was part of the team that set the current world record for the 4x100 relay. She is also a board member of the recently formed Athletics Association and has blogged on athletes' rights issues. The second special guest is Brendan Schwab. Brendan is, amongst other roles, the Executive Director of the World Players Association, which is a global union of players and athletes across professional sport. Brendan is a labour and human rights lawyer who has dedicated his career to protecting athletes' rights. Let's now restart the discussion by asking, do you consider that there are any merits to Rule 50? As someone who's not quite as affected as, as Tiana is by it, I'd have to say that I think there are some some merits to the rule. I think meddling or even appearing at the Olympics is the pinnacle of achievement and those who medal deserve recognition. However, in circumstances where the Olympic Games and the medal podium itself hasn't in the past borne witness to Nazi salutes and other less positive demonstrations, I think some restriction makes sense. And I think when we look at the international instruments that enshrine the right of freedom of expression, they talk about restrictions which are necessary for either respecting the rights of others or for public order. So in some ways, I can kind of see what the IOC is trying to do. Perhaps they think that certain types of gestures or protests are made that might become a a public order issue or offend the public morals. So I, I, I do consider that there are some merits to Rule 50. I think there's a place, I mean, even in freedom of speech doesn't cover all speech. And so one of the examples that they love to give is like, what if somebody gets up there and does a Nazi salute? Well, that obviously is not a protected <laughs> form of expression anywhere on this planet. And to equate the, the a black fist to a Nazi salute is inappropriate and historically inaccurate. And that is, that is my issue. So me going to on the podium kneeling or raising a fist is not equal to a Nazi salute or any other white supremacy symbol or any, anything like that. And of course that needs to be policed on the podium to say that allowing some athletes to do what has largely been peaceful demonstrations and symbols of fighting for equality to equate that with something extremely on the other side of the spectrum is absolutely disrespectful. So yes, there needs to be limits. At the same time, I'm pretty sure an athlete that would go up there and do a Nazi salute would get the consequences they deserved, if not from the IOC, from the public, from sponsors, from anyone. And so it's, it's not that difficult to put limits on this rule without limiting people who are being peaceful. Brandon, I can see you nodding away. 
Well, look, I think um, the players have, have really led in, in, in for many years in fighting to create an environment, for example, where they can play in an environment which is free of racism and discrimination. And, and, and to be honest, they've had limited success in, in, in doing that. There's still a lot of uh, vilification that occurs in stadia. But I, I also believe this silencing of the athlete's voice contributes to sports inability to change the societal attitudes that can create a safe environment. The, the respect that's been given to the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, which have now actually become normalised throughout global sport, show that sport's fine. And so the issue is really not whether the IOC needs this rule. The issue is whether and how the IOC is going to react to peaceful protest. <laughs> so the question is really one for, for, for the IOC. Our view is they can be perfectly relaxed about it and that the Olympic movement will be stronger by creating a safe environment for, for peaceful protest. I do believe that the constraints have been well mentioned by, by, by Tiana and me, and I do also believe that the IOC has a legitimate objective in trying to preserve the political neutrality of the Games because it's an international event that uh, shouldn't be used to promote disputes between the countries and that type of thing, I think. But we haven't really seen too much of that in the history of the Games. And I think that we all would understand that if there was to be a reasonable and a proportionate response, that that could all be very successfully managed. You know, not, sport likes to be very hierarchical. It likes to have a rule. It likes to have a very clear set of markers where if you step over the line, there's going to be an action. But you know what, sometimes life is about a conversation. Sometimes life is about working through these issues. And I think that's probably what we're lacking as a, as a global community at the moment is how do we actually have these conversations? And you know what, possibly the way for sport to set the right example now is to set the example on how we have these difficult conversations as opposed to go away behind closed doors and formulate a rule which it seeks to enforce with draconian sanctions. As we mentioned in part one, athletes are not prohibited from expressing their views when not on the Olympic grounds. What is the significance of protesting on the podium? I think it's about the journey to that moment. And every time I've been on the podium, I reflect on the entire journey to that point and all the people that got me there and everything that I had to overcome. Let's say I'm on the podium, Tokyo 2021. This now is part of that journey, this fight to be heard, run-ins with the police where I wasn't sure I was going to make it back alive, going for a run in my neighborhood where I'm not sure that I'm going to be profiled incorrectly by a neighbor. And I'm on the podium and I've overcome all of that. I still managed to have maintain a high level of discipline, a high level of focus to get to this point. And I imagine that in that moment, I might feel the need to say, I need you to see me. I need you to see me not just as the world's best long jumper, but as this human that overcame all of this unnecessary BS to get to this point. And if that looks like raising a fist, which most African-Americans in this country take as, um, as a sign of solidarity, like we made it, we did it, I'm here. Like, because I'm here, that means you can get here. That's what that means. 
if I did that as a way for little brown and black kids to stay encouraged to keep putting one foot in front of the other, I don't see a problem with that. I don't understand why that would be viewed as such a threat. That is me saying I am here within this system thriving in a world that isn't all that friendly towards me. And instead of, you know, being bitter or angry or violent, I am just giving you a nod that you can do it too. I want you to see me and all the stuff that I have to go through to get to this point. Because what ultimately happens is you see the gold medal, you see me, you think she's a good athlete. And that's the end of the story. But that is not the end of the story. That's none of our stories. And it's just, it's selling me short to put myself in that box in that moment. And that's why it's so important. That podium represents everything that you've worked for to that point. And then to get to that point and someone tells you how you have to behave, you are stripped of your personal story in that moment. And the fact that I don't even have the option to share that story in whatever little way I can in the few minutes that I'm up there is demeaning to me. Thanks, Tiana, for sharing that. That's why we need the voice of the athletes involved and not controlled, because it just makes the story stronger. It makes what sport represents stronger. And the athlete's a person, and uh, that's one thing we really focus on in our movement is what we call personal development and well-being. And, you know, if we look at, say, the abuse scandals that are occurring in sport at the moment, there's revelations of that day in, day out. Part of the cause of that, it, very young people getting a sense of identity that they're not a person beyond the athlete, that they're involved in a system which is very powerful and where those in power have a monopolistic control over their dreams. And that vulnerability we're seeing tragically is, is exploited. The, the Ropes and Gray report into US gymnastics said pain and suffering was normalised as part of athletic success. You know, that is not a value system that is what the Olympic movement purports to champion. It's completely at odds with that. And so by giving athletes their voice, we have the opportunity to change this, this system, which is very damaging for, for too many athletes when it should be a fantastic thing for them to be a part of. And therefore, we need to understand we're dealing with the athlete as a person first and foremost. And just to repeat something I said a bit earlier, freedom of expression is the great enabling rights. One of the great, it is the great enabling right, and together with freedom of association. And without respect for that, all of these other rights are also vulnerable. And I think that's why the athletes feel so strongly about this. If you're taking away my voice, you're taking away my identity. And that's a price which is, which is a bit too much to pay. And me, is there anything you want to say on this particular issue? No, I mean, it's great to hear Tiana's perspective and a non-athlete might think well in the age of social media is a demonstration on on the podium or in the olympic venue the way to get the most eyeballs but actually to hear from tiana the significance of the moment makes it clear as to why some feel really strongly that that's the opportune time to make a statement i think something else that struck me when reading the guidance and in particular the the notion that you're not prohibited from expressing your opinions. I can understand that the IOC might, you know, playing it, playing devil's advocate for them, might take the view that words have a lesser risk of being misinterpreted than gestures. But I think it is aware, or at least ought to be aware of 
the lasting power of gestures and, and the image that they can leave for years to come. To Nee's point, I have told my teammates that the podium shouldn't be the first time I am made aware of what they stand for, because there is that opportunity to be opportunistic, to take that moment and decide like, this is my moment to, to have a viral moment. And so for the, for the athletes, I don't think any of you would be surprised based on all the writing that I do and the, the way that I speak about these things. If I were to do that, you would know that this was really a part of who I am. Right. And so it is important that athletes utilize the venues available to them to do this and it would make the it makes the podium moment even more powerful. We've seen a number of other sports bodies embrace athlete demonstrations in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement. What's to stop the IOC doing the same? I was going to say I don't have an answer because I don't understand why they have not yet. <laughs> I I don't have an answer to that. I'm going to leave this one to the lawyers. Who, who lit the flame at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics? Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali who lost his career, well, because he was so brilliant, he didn't, but for nearly every other athlete in the world, they would have lost their career because he stood up for his religious beliefs. Yet, years later, I'm old enough to remember as a young person that Muhammad Ali was, was, a, was a hated figure in much of white society. Let, let, let's not look back, and I, I do have trouble with this nostalgic look back on, on, on human rights because it was difficult at the time. It's a struggle. We need to really understand our, 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 our history in all of this. And this, this notion that we look back, I think we need, to, we need to be aware of that. And this is part of the Olympic story. This is what makes the Olympic story richer. And we need to appreciate that, just like we can't forget about the 1936 Berlin Olympic Games either, which is the ultimate propaganda Game. So, so the history is complex, and I think that that doesn't make the Olympic movement poorer. It makes the Olympic movement much, much more culturally rich. From 2024, the IOC has agreed that the Olympic Games must be held in a way which respects internationally recognised human rights. And so the starting point for this discussion is for the IOC to do that, is to, to, is to acknowledge how... Uh, it can respect these rights, including freedom of political um, expression. The only argument I see against that is that these protests will become so widespread. I just don't think that's the nature of what we're dealing with. They, these, these are historic moments because of their rarity and their poignancy. We may go through a wave of protests because the problems are so systemic then the way to respond to a wave of protests is to deal with the cause of the problem and not respond to those who are trying to create an awareness of the problem. I would only say, if the IOC was to want my advice as a cynical lawyer, that to fail to embrace or to co-opt the athlete mood at the moment would be tantamount to willful ignorance. If the IOC finds the Black Lives Matter movement too controversial for its tastes, if it has reservations about embracing it because it fears that it might be confused with the Black Lives Matter organisations which have drawn criticism from some quarters, then it can simply have messaging around equality and discrimination. It need not jump in at the deep end if it doesn't feel prepared to or in a position to. 
Now, Kirsty Coventry is the chair of the IOC Athletes Commission, and she was recently reported to have said, the thing that I'm worried about is looking at a podium and you have someone who's campaigning for Black Lives Matter, someone campaigning for white supremacy, and someone campaigning for something else. Now, what do you think about that statement? Yeah, that was very disappointing because the Black Lives Matter movement is a movement towards equality. White supremacy is a movement about being superior to people who are not white. And for her to offer those up as if they are two counter movements is misinformed, disrespectful, and ignorant. And this is, this is why talking to them about this is like beating our heads against a brick wall, because that is almost always the counter argument. Well, if we let you do this, then we're going to get this. And they're just not the same thing. It is really easy to say that white supremacy demonstrations are not allowed. But to say that the Black Lives Matter movement or a gloved fist or a black fist is the equivalent of saying black supremacy, she's just not aware of the world we live in. We have to get to equality before we can even talk about being su supreme at anything, you know? So it's not even that. So yeah, it was a very disappointing statement to see and read. I think the quote, and I should say that I've read the article from which it's been taken, so it's not being considered out of context, lays a bearer shortcoming in, in the Athletes Commission's thinking, because maybe they're thinking about the abolition of the rule altogether, whereas they could try and revise it, try and redraft it, so it, it basically allows peaceful protest while excluding hateful protest. By her quote, she appears to suggest that any amendment to Rule 50 would necessarily have to open the door to all manner of protests and demonstrations, which I don't think needs to be the case. Unfortunately, I think as Tiana has, has said, her words suggest that you know, Black Lives Matter and white supremacy are equally valid views to hold, which is probably not what she intended, but I think it's one way in which you could read her words, unfortunately. How do you think protests which relate to disputes between nations might be prevented? Well, it's a really difficult question, so I don't want to uh, have to answer it. I do believe political neutrality would probably be recognised by the courts as being a legitimate objective. There's some decisions of the European Court of Human Rights on that without being too legalistic. But what's really interesting is the IOC likes to enter this space. Sports bodies like to enter this space. FIFA recognises Palestine. Quite often at the Olympics, the two Koreas march as one country. These are issues which the Olympic movement seeks to embrace. And if the Olympic movement seeks to embrace, for example, unity and, and, and recognition in those types of contexts, I, I don't see how an individual athlete who may have a strong view, which is contrary to any of the approaches which have been taken by the Olympic movement, should be condemned for doing so. The IOC would have entered that space. I think it's entered it to promote peace. I think we all understand that that's a noble objective, but not everyone will, will, will agree with it. I think it shows the paradox that often exists between the so-called political and apolitical nature of the Olympic movement. The next question is, do you think that Rule 50 or the Athletes Commission guidance will be amended prior to Tokyo 2021? I think it's possible that the guidance might be amended, but I, I actually think more likely than not, it won't be. 
And I think what they'll do is they'll use the uncertainty and the ability to impose sanctions on a case-by-case basis to take a common-sense approach. And what about you, Tiana? I actually agree with me. I don't think that Rule 50 itself will change. I don't think that the guidance will change. But like both me and Brendan have said earlier in this conversation, that the uncertainty and the lack of clarity in the rules will actually form a shield for them. And I think they will rely strongly on this case-by-case basis, if not just pass it to the national governing bodies to deal with. And I think it might become an issue of who did it and what is their impact and their influence and how bad would the public outcry be if the IOC were to take a position against that specific athlete. And I think that's what it's going to come down to, unfortunately. And Brendan, what's your view? Well, I think the IOC should. Whether they will, will depend on how they read the situation. And look, let's hope that we can get these games on, given the pandemic, of course. But if I look at at 2021 and I look at medal prospects, I look at men's basketball, women's basketball, women's soccer, I think there's almost certainly going to be some athletes who feel very strongly about these issues and feel very strongly too that the IOC is telling them to be quiet. It's almost a provocation to people who are really, really committed to their fundamental human rights and who believe they have a responsibility to, as a, for the reasons I was saying earlier, about the forced ceremony to, to make sure they stand true at all times, particularly at a moment of recognition to those beliefs. FIFA Pro, the World Football Players Union, has already said that it will absolutely defend any athlete that is sanctioned uh, or uh, under Rule 50. I really believe that with the games being delayed a year, the IOC already a number of months ago making a commitment to a comprehensive human rights strategy, it does have the time and it does have access to the expertise and the organised athletes to really develop a new approach and one which doesn't repeat the same old mistakes of the past. This survey-driven approach through the Athletes Commission, bearing in mind that under its own regulations, the Athletes Commission is not independent of the IOC, it doesn't have the capacity to bind the IOC, that approach is not effective. Surveying is always a problem when it comes to human rights because they're not a popularity contest. They exist to protect minorities in particular. So let's hope that this human rights strategy is accelerated despite the challenge, uh, the opportunity rather of postponement. I know it's a very challenging time for all of sport because of COVID, but I really think this is a top priority for the IOC to address between now and uh, next summer. Tiana, do you also think that athlete protests at Tokyo 2021 are almost a certainty? I do, because I am not even what I consider an activist that protests or that takes to the street with the sign, right? But when I read that guidance and the double down, I felt like I had to, because to not do so would be counter to everything that I say I am and I'm striving to be. So I think that I'm not the only one in that position feeling feeling that way, who would feel like more of a sellout to not do it than to risk it all and do so. In the last few days, the British Olympic Association has come out and said that it will support its athletes if they show their support for the Black Lives Matter movement at Tokyo. 
What's the position in the US? Has there been any sort of national level assurance? Not yet. We we have asked that they just not sanction us further. Because we understand that there is some kind of consequence for doing so that would come from the IOC. But we are asking that our national governing body not do the same. And we have not gotten a commitment from them as of yet. Now, demonstration is usually a means to an end and not an end in itself. What ends would you like to see athlete demonstrations ultimately lead to? Oh, it's so complicated. These problems are so big, right? But what I would love to see is the IOC come down off of their own podium and say, okay, what is going on? I think Brendan responded to that earlier. He said, instead of you know focusing on the protests, we got to kind of pay attention to what they're protesting about. Even just feeling like the IOC, who cares so much about us being there for the show of the Olympics, to then come down and ask us what is going on, what's happening, to talk to us, that would mean something to me. So far, the first and only conversations that the IOC has been willing to have with the athletes have been about curbing the reality that we might protest. They have not asked, what is happening to you in America that is causing this issue that has that has been so powerful that people in the UK are having the same protests. What is it? They haven't asked that question. And so in terms of demonstrating at the Olympic Games in front of the IOC, I would that would make me very happy to feel like they care about us beyond ruining their show or or the lack of dignity at the podium ceremony. Now the last question Given everything that has transpired since 1968 and 1972, do you think that the IOC owes an apology to John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Vincent Matthews, and Wayne Collin? Also, we have to mention Peter Norman. He, he lost a lot, and he was, he was treated so poorly. Uh, so, yes, they do, especially since every year, like clockwork, they tweet or post pictures of these same people. and seemingly and performatively applaud the the work they did to advance human rights. And so if they're going to continue to do that, then they absolutely need to apologize. Absolutely. And Brendan? I, I, I don't know the answer because I don't know whether those four, four gentlemen want an apology. I think what they're entitled to is, is a remedy for the discriminatory behaviour they were the victim of. And I do think this is a great question because in dealing with the future, we have to deal with the past. And uh, there are issues I mentioned earlier in relation to the abuse of athletes and issues which are going on. In order to embed human rights moving forward, sport is going to have a conversation about the past. I think it's really important to involve those athletes, not just as advocates, but as participants and, 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 and negotiating partners in, in, in the solution. I think if they want an apology, it would be a wonderful gesture moving forward. But I know, having read so much about them, that they would demand that it be associated with some form of systemic change because they're so principled that they wouldn't want to be part of the problem. They, they want to be part of the solution. Great. We'll wrap things up there. Thank you to Tiana and Brendan for joining us for our two-part series and for providing their powerful insight and unique perspectives. For further information on Rule 50 and other athletes' rights issues, please go to our website, www.morgansl.com. 
If you are interested in signing up to our mailing list, or if there are any topics that you would like to see addressed in a future podcast, please email us at podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, please connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook for articles, updates, and news pieces. We hope that you've enjoyed listening and that you will join us for future episodes of Play On.